Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling more confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TVD Conference. The theme this season is the real future of work. What's really going on with the world of work under the hood? What's changing? What's not being said? We're checking assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I spoke with an amazing array of people from Dan Pink to Harvard University professors, TikTok superstars, data specialists and generational experts, all live on Twitter spaces. What follows is a recording of that space, so it's more conference call than podcast booth. Sponsors are incredibly important to me, and I am proud to say Ecology are back, and they planted a tree for every live listener we had. We're over 15,000 trees in the TBD forest now, and you can start planting your own over at ecology.com. That's spelled E-C-O-L-O-G-I.com. Workplace by Meta also came on board this season. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways and whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very, very cool indeed. Make sure you never miss a moment of Mouthwash by signing up for the newsletter over at mouthwashshow.com. And you can also get a text alert over at mouthwash.norby.live. Very handy for busy people. Check out all those links in the description too. As with all good podcasts, please share it on a network you trust and leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD Conference. The conference attendees say is like Ted without the bullshit. We're flipping it up this season. We're live Tuesdays through Thursday. You still get the same amount of mouthwash. We just spread it over the middle of the week. Uh, A reflection of the times and changing world of work, which is our theme for this season of mouthwash, the real future of work. This season, we're exploring what's working, what's not. We're checking our assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I want to know what's really going on under the surface, where it's all going and how we're going to get there. I have an amazing cohort of people joining me this season from multiple best-selling authors like Dan Pink to brand new startups who are creating new models for the metaverse. I'm also discussing the future with experts from Harvard University, behavioral psychologists to CEO advisors and also TikTok superstars. Check out the full lineup and previous episodes of Mouthwash over at mouthwashshow.com. That's mouthwashshow, all one word, dot com. I am proud to say we're also sponsored again this season, this time by the folks over at Workplace by Meta. Whatever you bring to the world of work, uh, Workplace celebrates it. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways. If you can make it your place of work, a great place to work, you can visit workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very cool indeed. Workplace.com forward slash human. Very, very fun. Very sort of good to get people sort of conversing. Check it out. Um, Ecology are also back to plant a tree for every live listener in the TBD forest. We're over 15,000 trees at the moment. So if you're looking to reduce your or your business's carbon footprint, head over to ecology.com and you can start planting your forest today. They're also giving you a free month. So check that out. So it's ecology.com, E-C-O-L-O-G-I.com, E-C-O-L-O-G-I.com. Uh, now's a great time to share the space, actually, get some more people in there, get some more trees in the world. So if you click the round blue plus button in the bottom right hand side of your screen, you'll tell the world you found something good. Uh, everyone you get into the screen, uh, to the space rather, means another tree in the world. And I think you'll agree that's no bad thing. So, yeah, so hit that blue plus button anytime, multiple times even throughout the space. Up to you. Um, but yeah, if you want to ask a question, just DM me or use the Mouthwash Show hashtag and we'll pick it up from there. And it's Mouthwash Show, all one word. OK. 
Joining me tonight from Alpine, Utah, in the US, is Dr. Tessa White, aka The Job Doctor. Dr. Tessa works with some of the biggest names in business, from uh, Fortune 50 companies to startups who need good advice to create great places to work. Uh, previously working for multiple companies that move the needle on to create massive employee change, Tessa focuses on talent management, people's strategy, redesigns, and uh, talent engagement platforms. She's known nationwide as an expert on people's strategy. Tessa's been featured in multiple business outlets, from Forbes to The Wall Street Journal, Entrepreneur, Inc., Everything. She's also done TV, loads of news appearances whenever industry news breaks. She's obviously been very busy the last three years, but that's not where I know Dr. Tessa from. I actually found out about her through TikTok, where she's amassed the eyeballs of half a million people and she regularly gives away top tips and secrets on the inner workings of HR departments to help people get ahead um, or change their lives. That's the interesting bit as well. It's not just, you know, handy hints, it's sort of like how to decide if you need to leave a company and that sort of thing. Um, she's done the same on Instagram as well. No mean feat. So some people are very good on one platform. She's very good on all platforms, it seems. But yeah. Uh, welcome to Mouthwash, Tessa. Did I miss anything? No, except I had no idea till this moment that you found me on TikTok. So I find that fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. A, anyone can check this. I do not use TikTok as in I'm a creator. I, I see ruthlessly what people are doing and I find it very entertaining. Not going to lie. There's a lot of laughing involved. But yeah. Um, Tell me, though, what was the first thing that you thought of when you woke up today? The first thing I thought of? Oh, man. Uh, I guess I thought, um, I thought, how am I going to get it all? How am I go going to fit it all in? I'm finding that I have so many questions, so many. I, I get about 200 personal emails a day. And as you mentioned, I really thrive on helping the individual. And just trying to fit that in with the schedule is, is getting harder and harder to do. Ooh. Do you have a team or is it just you? No, I've got a small team now, but the small team needs to be a big time, a big team. Just Oops. always adjusting on the fly as quick as I can. Yeah, that's that's the thing, isn't it, about TikTok is they're, they're changing everything. But also you do speaking ops, you work with people. Obviously, you've got to do the work. You can't just make content for people. Um, you, you, you've been working, uh, what do you call it, for a number of years before, obviously, getting super huge on TikTok. Um, what's been your biggest learning, though, after the uh, over the last two to three years? Not about obviously running TikTok, but the, the world of work. Ah, oh, the world of work. Well, I'll. I'll tell you, I think that it has shifted permanently and in a very quick fashion. What I see every day is that there is a real convergence and a clash between the generations, between boomers and Y. And I'm, I'm a generation, excuse me, in Generation X um, and millennials and Gen Z. I mean, I don't think employers who and CEOs who are largely, you know, of the older generations running businesses, I don't think they understand what's actually going on and what's happening in front of their noses. It's pretty fascinating to me. Mm. Okay, we're going to talk about generations a little bit later, but I want to first talk about um, the world of HR. So before we talk about resignations, managing leadership, let's talk about the basic function of HR. I think it's come under fire a lot uh, during the pandemic for allowing weird firings, uh, lack of training, weird money things. Um, <laughs> it's, it's possible controversial, but it's been, I think, widely written about that HR exists to protect the company and not the people inside it. I remember when I first started, HR were people you could go to if you've got a problem with, uh, you know, where you were living, like random things, you know, that people I don't think at the moment would ever think to go to an HR person with. It's almost become a sort of fearful uh, department. Um, to what degree do you think that statement that, you know, HR exists to protect the company, not the people inside it is correct at the moment? 
it's 100% true. And I think when people understand what companies really are and what they're aligned to do and what HR is aligned to do, it's not something to be afraid of. And it's not even something to be mad about. It just is. And when you understand that HR departments are there to protect the company, you can take a different approach in asking for raises or, you know, moving up the career ladder. You just have to come at it from their perspective, which is risk. It's all about risk for HR. And if you go around thinking that HR is supposed to be your best friend or your life coach, you're going to be really, I think, disappointed. So does that mean that HR is never there to protect the worker? No, I think HR wants to protect people. I think HR, you get in HR because you like people and you want to help people. And in a perfect world, you can do both. It's not mutually exclusive, the company or the person. But if given the choice, know that the company's going to, or the HR is going to side with the company. So if you're let go, let's say, um, for something, the company needs to be protected and HR is going to do its very best to make sure they stack the odds in favor of the company around lawsuits and that type of thing. And for instance, uh, they don't want to put something in writing or they're going to not put labels on things that would somehow make the lawsuit worse. That doesn't serve you. That serves the company. And it's not meant to hurt you. It just is that when a choice has to be made and when you can't serve both parties, HR will have to default to the company. Yeah. Do you think the industry is evolving quick enough? Do you think they've learned, you know, bad ways during the pandemic? Uh, I think it's hard to be in HR right now. I, I can say that. I, I wouldn't want to work in a corporate setting because what's right and what's wrong is very blurry right now. And, and cancel culture and everything that comes with it is also permeating into HR. And I think it's a pretty difficult world to navigate. How do you do DEI, for instance? You know, how do you do diversity and inclusion? It just feels like every way you step, you're stepping in mud. And it's really hard to know what the mm. right thing to do is. It's kind of interesting, though. When I look at the world of HR and I look at those, I think they're called lunar maps, like what, what technology is available for any industry. Um, mm -hmm. And I look at it and I look at HR, sorry, I look at AI, I look at, um, you know, forms and everything like that. And I think the tools are there. I think they're just being misused. Like AI is such a dodgy scenario to get in. We've had lots of roadblocks with racist AI, uh, AI mm -hmm. that's sexist and that sort of stuff. But actually, mm -hmm. there's a lot of good technology out there. And it's about what you're putting into it that often sort of gets out. HR doesn't seem to be particularly using that much tech. Do you think there's a reason for that? I think they need to use tech more. The best HR people I know have been operations leaders. And um, I think HR could benefit from a technology uplift. You know, I wish colleges taught more about technology and AI and, uh, and operations, to be honest. Um, I think it would make the profession just overall better. Um, and, and I'm not trying to diss on HR. This was my profession and still is my profession to, to a degree. Uh, there's really good things that HR people do, but I think they miss the boat on maximizing technology to do the work um, a lot of the times. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Okay, let's talk about the big one, what we wanted to talk about, the great resignation or acceleration for some. Um, the data seems to suggest a few different things. It sort of changes, it certainly changed from six months ago to what it is being talked about today. Which which side do you most uh, agree with or side with, uh, the great resignation or acceleration? I don't think there's, I don't know. I don't think there's sides. I don't look at it that way. I just, I look at it that 
Um, there's a way of thinking that employers need to adopt. And if they don't, they're going to lose the talent war. So it, I don't know that it's right or wrong thinking. It just is. If you think about what's going on, we've gone from prescribed paths, choices, you know, pre prescribed paths. This is the way you do it. And you move up the ladder in this way to, you know, I'm really unique and there's lots of different paths we could take to kind of a who am I is where we are now with people pivoting and trying new things. And we've also gone in that same period of time from jobs being on average 8.8 .8 years to now 2.2 years with Gen Z. And so everything is so transitory and short term now that if employers can't change their value proposition for employees, for example, 401k, that's a four year vest. Well, people aren't staying four years. So that's ridiculous that that's something that the company is going to spend all that money on. Uh, you've got to speak to the generation today and how they think they can barely get 300 bucks, you know, to, to pay their bills, let mm -hmm. alone think about a house or think about, you know, what the job's going to look like in 10 years. Let's talk a bit about that because it's uncertainty, a lot of what you've mentioned there and that sort of thing. I think it was the um, Harvard Business Review that said the great resignation is really 30 to 45 year olds who are seeing the biggest sort of resignation bucket. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's 20% year over year, they said. Um, older bands of people, 60s, 70s, seem to be staying put. I mean, that's sensible, likely due to uncertainty and also end of career, waiting for parachutes to open and that sort of thing. But if we fast forward, this seems to leave um, organisations with top heavy you know, workforce, if that makes sense. And then that's going to drop off a cliff, obviously, for obvious reasons. People leave and also, you know, shuffle off. Um, so that that's going to leave, you know, a, a massive dearth of experience uh, and talent. What do you think businesses should be doing now to plan for that? They need to speak the language of, of Gen Z and millennials. And part of that is understanding that, you know, an annual raise, for instance, that that doesn't work anymore. You got to take the same bucket of money that you've got and you've got to break up pay and give more frequent uh, increases. You need to mimic ownership in like a profit sharing sign that mimics ownership and feels like what it feels to be an owner. You have to define a career path if you want your people to stay and you have to give them the tools, the training that they need to be able to stay and you have to see your people. I mean, honestly, the biggest complaint I hear is see me. You don't see me for who I am. You treat me like a cog in the wheel. And that is creating this idea that I'm not going to be more loyal to the company than it can be to me. That's a huge shift. We used to just suck it up. I mean, I'm a Gen X. We sucked it up and you just did it and you paid your dues. And that is not the view of today's worker at all. Companies are no longer can companies just say, yeah, this is what I have to offer. Take it or leave it. They're going to have to adjust because I think the pendulum has swung to the employee side. Interesting. Um, yeah, I never really thought about it as a pendulum, but I guess it everything can be a pendulum, can't it as well? Um, to your point with, you know, generations and that sort of stuff, I'm speaking with um, Dr. Eliza Philby later on in the series about issues um, that different age bands or generation grouping, mm -hmm. you know, whatever you want to call them, um, has on the world of work. Do you think the future of work is so simple as just better at communication between different age work groups or like more workshops for age groups? Uh, no, I don't think it, I don't think it's going to be that simple. No, I think we're, I think the big shifts are going to be uh, seeing the whole person and seeing the whole person is, is new to us. I mean, it was always when I worked, it was, you know, you suck up whatever's going on at home and you just come in and you do your work. You separate the two. The two have been inextricably kind of connected through the pandemic and I don't think it's going away. So mental health is a big deal now. 
um, helping somebody kind of navigate life, financial freedom, and and figuring out how to get through the financial burdens that this generation has is important. And I think you're going to see employers start to divert their funds from things nobody cares about, or this generation doesn't care about, like short-term and long-term disability, into things like, help me purchase a car. Help me do a payroll deduction to purchase a car. Help me pay my bills. Help me get out of uh, student loan debt. And it's just going to be a different, um, a different mix of things that employers need to offer to keep people engaged and interested in their work. And I think mm. if employers can help people li- with life in general, mental health, bills, whatever that is, I think those people are going to stay at those companies because they feel seen, they feel heard, and you know, the employer's treating the whole person and not just, you know, the work life of that person. Mm. It's kind of interesting, just just thinking about that from a sort of longer term perspective. Do you think we're going to start seeing more females in uh, leadership roles because of what their need, what leaders are needing to do, which is talk to people about mental health, which traditionally, you know, being highly sexist, I'm sure there are men out there that can do it, talking about emotions and, um, you know, what's going on. Most people, I think, at the moment would, would argue that that's not 100% why men you know are in their positions and that sort of stuff and they, they're they just not good at it I've you know there's data both ways on that I'm sure I think that's covered my ass enough on that one um do you think that that's going to um be a reason for more women uh, being promoted uh well let me cover myself on my answer first my disclaimer is this does not apply to all uh women nor are all men so it's a generalization but thank you for that we- <laughs> We've seen that top-down leadership has kind of been the way, very directive leadership. And the leadership model that's working nowadays is much more, um, you can call it female, it, that somebody's going to yell at me for that, but it's a, it's a different approach. It's around seeing that that whole person. And so you will see that. And in that regard, maybe we will see more women. But what's happening, I just was reading some statistics, as long as when we ask women to go back to work and have to be in the workplace, not remote, it's having a pretty devastating effect on women and other marginalized groups in the workforce. And so early data is saying that this return to work could really hurt women. And so it really depends what happens with that. I believe that the employers that are going to win the talent on war are the ones that are going to offer options to people. Lots of options because there's lots of different paths now and lots of different needs. I don't think we're ever going to go back to this idea of one prescribed path. So it, the companies that do offer remote, I think we'll see more women rising up. And those that take a hard line may find that they are cut off from some of the groups that could be the greatest workers for them. Yeah, no, definitely. And good butt covering all around. Congrats to us. All right. Um, it's somewhat sector dependent, the great resignation, where there's obviously high demand, tech, healthcare. You see more movement. No real surprise there. Supply and demand. Um, how do companies build loyalty, though, after a massive period of uncertainty and financial hardship for many, often which isn't over and it's being exacerbated by other things, certainly on both sides of the pond? Is it about tailored retention programs and what do they look like or is it more about the soul of the company still and you have to be on board with the vision well it's a little bit of both i mean the experience economy really speaks to the younger generations and you know the experience of of going places doing things having a cause and so companies that have a cause i think have kind of an edge so that's one thing uh i think companies it used to be training was the first thing cut. As long as I've been in HR, training gets cut every time. But training is going to take front and center because if you want to keep your employees, you're going to have to paint the picture 
of how you can move from this role to this role and how it benefits you. And you're going to have to be pretty darn clear on that. Instead of it being an accidental growth, it's going to have to be deliberate growth to keep those people. Mm. So I do think those are two very big changes that our companies will have to make. You touched upon it a little bit earlier, but you talked about in a recent TikTok about perks and compensation for different uh, age groups. Um, mm -hmm. You believe companies are focusing on the wrong things when they try to impress younger bands of workers. And it just seemed really sensible to me. So I wanted to sort of make sure that's clear for everyone, because I know there are people who are going to be mm -hmm. listening to this, uh, you know, in leadership roles and that sort of stuff. Um, can you explain what companies are doing wrong and perhaps give some specifics on how to appeal to Gen Alphas versus Z or Millennials? Mm -hmm. Sure. So let's just start with the obvious. A 401k program has a four-year vest. Equity grants have a four-year vest. And yet, if your employees on average between Gen Z and millennials are staying 2.5 years in a job, how does that speak to them? How does that serve them? And yet, it's a tremendous cost to the bottom line for a company. Tremendous. And so the companies that I see that aren't doing well are offering traditional benefits packages traditional health insurance, terrible EAP programs to cover mental health, uh, you know, just call this number and you'll get a, a therapist. And they're, um, they might be giving a few more holidays and a little more flexibility, but they look very traditional. The companies that are winning are companies that are reallocating dollars and saying, okay, what do you need? Let's talk about what true flexible work arrangements look like. You can work from home or you can work here. Uh, you they're creating short-term wins for people. So things that are um, profit sharing, for example, you help us win, you get a slice of the pie because people are really ticked off that companies and CEOs in particular are making tons of money and they're not. And they're not even keeping up with the cost of living. And so uh, programs that allow people to see, hey, I worked really hard and I get a piece of that. Also, pay plans that a, a new company should be doing pay plans that can either move up or down based on performance. They don't have to cost any more in a total cost envelope for a company, but to reward top performers so that it doesn't matter how long you've been in the job or what you've done. If you're getting, you're, if you're getting the work done and you're doing a good job, you should get paid. That's definitely a big thing that uh, today's worker cares about. But, you know, an older generation is like, no, you're going to pay your dues. You're going to pay your dues and you're going to move up when we move mm. up and you'll get the raise when we you get the raise. Okay. Um, one thing that's been in the news recently is unions. They're coming back into favor in the U.S. Amazon now has one, first in its 27-year history. Apple soon might too. Do you think that's signaling that businesses are exploiting people more than ever or is it something else at play? Boy, Okay. And again, a disclaimer. This is just me free flow thinking on this. I've been thinking about it a lot. What worries me, I get where it's coming from. People have not felt like they have been treated fairly, taken advantage of with compensation, you name it. But I am not a big fan of uh, unions. And I don't think that it gets us the quality of work overall that we need. There's got to be there's got to be a blend. There's got to be something new, a new version of what a union would look like that's more nimble, that allows us to move quicker. Because I'll tell you what, I'm getting calls from CEOs every day saying, 
I am starting to hire overseas because I cannot keep up with the raise requests of people and I can't keep up with uh, what's happening to my cost envelope. I can get harder workers overseas and pay them significantly less and it's the only path they're seeing. So I really worry that I'm seeing some really early indicators about what is to come and it's not a pretty picture. I, I really worry about where we're headed. Yeah, that does seem to ring some alarm bells for a lot of people, I think. Uh, it's certainly, I, I, from a European perspective, um, unions are a good thing. And that's kind of interesting. But when I lived in the US, unions were like, don't mention the U word. You know, so it's kind of interesting. I, I really do think that's a, a an interesting sort of uh, across the pond thing. I was fascinated when Amazon got theirs, that's for sure. Um, let's talk about TikTok. Um, I remember when I saw you first, um, but you've been on TikTok since October 2020. Is that right? Uh, I don't know. That sounds about right. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You've amassed over half a million followers. That's one million eyeballs total. Um, what made you get on TikTok though? Oh, this is funny. I, I, I had to reinvent like everybody how I did my work because I was a public speaker and I thought, what am I going to do? So I, I started this new model, the job doctor and did rent my brains where people could get information from me. My daughter, who's in PR said, you got to do TikTok. Let me let me post some. I didn't even know how to log in. So she posted a few TikToks. And all of a sudden, three days later, I get a call from my son in California. And he goes, Mom, I know this seems impossible, but my girlfriend just said she saw you on TikTok. Is that even possible? Well, it turns out I had 10,000 followers in three days on TikTok. And so my daughter, whom I owe a lot to now, was really right on. And it's been a, a, a pleasant and wonderful surprise uh, to see how many serious business people, um, very senior people, CEOs, junior people, new grads, you name it, have been on TikTok um, and use it as a tool to learn and to grow. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. What, what's been your biggest learning since uh, you've been on TikTok? Well, I've had to learn myself to be more concise in the way that I share ideas. And uh, that's been difficult. It's been difficult to really turn everything that you think into a 30 second blurb, basically. And so sometimes I, uh, I am at fault for speaking too short because I'm just trained every single day to try and condense what I know or what I think about something into such, such a short little piece of material. <laughs> it's a good skill to have though, isn't it? When you need to get a soundbite, that's for sure. Um... What's a uh, salary negotiation? Uh, that's your most viewed video. I think it's been viewed over 8.5 million times. Um, why is it that salary negotiation is still such a murky, cloudy area when it comes to jobs? I think people don't. I think it's just shrouded with secrecy. I honestly, people think that the employer has all the leverage. They know how much they want to pay for the position. They know who the candidates are. You know, they're holding all the cards. And I think it's fascinating to people when you, someone like myself who's been on the other side and has seen thousands of negotiations can say, you know, there's really 12 things you can negotiate in your offer. They're like, 12? Are you kidding? I thought maybe there was two or three, but there's 12. And when you talk about different tactics to negotiate that can get you what you want and backup plans if you get a no, I just don't think people, they only know what they know from what they've asked for or their friends have asked for. But for someone like me or another career coach who's been behind the scenes and has seen thousands of these things play out, I really feel like I'm a human computer of data on how you 
can get things across the finish line and you see what people negotiate and you can see what works. I just don't think mm. anybody ever spent time talking about it very much. I think it's interesting because a lot of the information is out there on the internet, isn't it? Like they've done lists and YouTube videos and that sort of thing. I think TikTok has just brought it to a generation that needs that help, number one, you know, the younger <laughs> bands of it. And also it's short so that people's attention spans don't miss, if that makes sense. You know, some people have even gone so far as to type out emails for people and then link to the, what is it, um, the very temporary page that people can copy it from. It's nuts, isn't it? How like people are using what is essentially, and they'll call it themselves an entertainment platform to help them negotiate thousands of pounds extra in, in salaries. Do oh, you think who, it's going to move forward? Who would have guessed that a, a channel that you thought was about teenagers dancing could actually give you useful advice. And one of the things I've noticed with the younger generation is they, they seem to have this attitude of, um, you know, I'm going to stick it to the man and it doesn't work in salary negotiations. It just doesn't yeah. work. And so having somebody who's been there, done that, I think it's helpful for them to, to understand the lay of the land, because, uh, one of the things I've noticed is they, they tend to leave a company before they'll address an issue. And that's not just pay negotiation. That's a whole slew of issues. Anything uncomfortable, they would almost prefer to leave and say, I just can't stand it anymore, rather than taking steps to fix it. Because I think in, in large part, they don't know quite how to fix it. So I decided to meet them where they're at, which is short learning snacks, you know, 30 seconds to a minute and teach them how to how to get that done. Mm. Do you think we're failing our younger bands of people when it comes to negotiating skills? Should we be teaching that from a younger age? Oh, well, we should be teaching a whole heck of a lot, not just salary negotiation. We should be setting expectations about what a career looks like. Uh, you know, we learn a little bit in school, at least here in the U.S., about marriage and about family. But we don't learn anything about careers, you know, you might sit down with a career counselor and they say, hey, go to this school or you might want to go into business or computers. It pays a lot. But outside of that, people are really not educated on what a, what this career path can lead to and what makes money and what doesn't make money and just the standards of a job. How do you get ahead at job and how do you navigate once you're into a company? I, I, it blows my mind sometimes what uh, people are fired for. And I, I, it just blows me away. It's like, you really didn't think you had to show up on time, for instance. <laughs> oh so God. some of the base, it should be, it should be required. It should be required. They should have a careers course required in high schools that really deep dives for people on all things careers, I think. God, I mean, it is weird, isn't it? Like most pe younger bands of people, their aspirations are to be famous on TikTok, YouTube and that sort of thing, the, the influencer world and that sort of stuff. Where do you think the pandemic has sort of helped move that needle? Do you think it's helping people figure out, oh, OK, maybe it's not for me? Or do you think now more than ever, because we've all had our eyeballs glued to our mobile phones, that that is, you know, mm -hmm. cemented as people? Well, I think social media has helped and hurt. How it has hurt, though, is it presents this perfect little world. Um, and how that shows up in the business world scares me because I think a lot of clients think that, that call me say, I, I just I'm not satisfied or I'm not finding fulfillment in my job. And my point is, well, what made you ever think that your job was going to make you it was going to be a calling for you in life that just met all of your needs? You know, you can have a job and just kind of get over the finish line and that's okay. And you can have a job you enjoy, 
that you have some fulfillment in and you have a pretty good idea of where you want to go. And then there's a really small select few people that have a calling. They do it and they just, they love it. But I think that the idea is from Instagram and, and social media is that, you know, life's great and it's wonderful. And I just, I, I, there's an expectation that a job is something it just isn't. I mean, if you're happy half the time in your job, I consider that a win. I haven't liked my job for a good share of my career, but it has had great, great moments of growth and great moments of satisfaction. But if I went around thinking I should be happy all the time in my job, I, I just don't know that I ever would have made it as far as I did. Yeah, I think you've got to sort of see the bad to change things and, and that sort of thing. Um Speaking of bad, actually, let's talk about bosses for a sec. Um, they can be good, obviously, but let's talk about bad bosses for a sec. It's another topic you talk about a lot on TikTok. But what do you think we've learned, if anything, about management during the pandemic? Mm, well, uh, I, I'll tell you, I have learned, I don't know if it's just pandemic related, but I've learned that managers, it's, it's the craziest thing. We have, you know, managers, the track, right? If you want to grow in a company, at some point, you got to manage people. And yet colleges don't teach leadership. Business schools don't have any significant part about leadership and how to lead and manage. And we take great individual contributors and try and make them great managers, often without training. And I think that's a great big mistake. So if anything, I think what the pandemic has done is highlighted that it doesn't work. <laughs> we need to train and we need to teach leaders how to lead. We need to teach them how to have, uh, how to address conflict, how to manage time, how to prevent burnout from their employees. Because we also know that a manager has more input and more um, influence over whether somebody leaves their job or likes their job than any other single thing. If you look at the the 10 main causes of burnout, I'd say six out of 10 of them, maybe seven out of 10 of them lead right back to the manager. I mean, that's sobering for any managers listening, I think. Um, you, you, might, you might be the problem. It's always tough to hear. But um, managers don't want to be bad, though. That's the thing. I think everybody walks around thinking, I have this horrible manager. I hear that all the yeah. time. My manager's horrible. There's no manager I know of that wakes up in the morning and says, I want to be the world's crappiest manager today. And I, I don't want to help my people. I think, I think everybody that goes to work wants to make a difference, a positive difference. And that is managers included. Um, I just think sometimes they don't have the tools to do so. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Um, what do you think the biggest issue um, with management and leadership um, is you're seeing at the moment, which isn't being talked about? Hmm. Oh boy, great question. Um, I think I think there's a couple of things that that concern me. One is that um, I don't think there are a lot of bad managers, and I think performance reviews and this power dynamic between the manager and the employee. I think they need to go both ways. I think we should be talking to having our employees assess managers as well as managers assess their people, and it kind of evens out the uh, the balance just a little bit. And that's something I think we're really missing here. So that would be a big thing. Uh, what else? Let's see. What was the question again? Let me think. Um, it was talking about what the biggest issue with management leadership that you're seeing now that isn't being okay. talked about. I think, I think what we're seeing happen with so many people leaving and managers being in a tough spot, what they do is they 
they overburden their top performers. And I hate seeing it because we don't reward them necessarily either. So you get people going out the revolving door on the, on the front end, and then they give the extra work to the top performers. And then uh, we burn out our top performers. Managers are aligned. You know, we talked about what HR was aligned to, but managers are aligned to keeping within their budget and getting results. And so their go-to is always going to be, where can I get the results and not go out of budget? So that's why they give the work to these top performers and ask them to, to do that work and fill in. But they rarely are giving them the rewards that should accompany it because they are aligned not to go out of budget. They have to go to their manager to go out of budget and it uses up one of their get out of jail free cards. So that's a big problem. That's a real big problem. And I think we need help uh, to give managers a different path, a different way, uh, and different tools to be able to reward people and rely on top performers, but uh, not burn them out. Yeah, I think burnout is one of the things that is, it's been talked about, it's been mentioned, but no one's really sort of addressing what that means for leaders as well as workers. We've definitely heard the part of the workers, they're leaving and that sort of stuff. But the leaders and the managers, that's where I worry because those people are equally bad for asking for help until it's too late. And I'm hearing it from businesses, clients and that sort of thing that everyone is really struggling, but very few people are talking about it, which kind of leads me on to a nice sort of segue. Um one thing I think that's become clear during the last three years is that there is a real mismatch of trust in the businesses that we work for. Um, there's never been greater flexibility, but there's also never been greater surveillance on us while we work. Um, how do you think leaders should address the issue of trust as we move towards a hybrid way of working? Mm, that's a good question. I'm not sure I have the answer to that yet. I know that I know that before the pandemic hit, the reason we we co companies didn't give everybody remote work is they didn't trust the employee to work hard. And the experiment of the pandemic taught us that we can, in fact, be very, very productive. I also have a belief that people generally rise to the occasion. When you treat someone like an adult, there's always going to be somebody that doesn't. But by and large, people rise to the occasion. And, and I think people try and do the right thing. So um, I don't know the right balance on that, to be honest. I know I would I would err on the side of of trust, but I don't know what the exact right answer is other than companies are going to have to get better at understanding what productivity metrics, what works and what is reasonable to expect. And managers are going to have to get better at knowing, you know, what what can I get done? How do I project manage this? That's going to be a big skill for managers going forward is project management and really resource allocation. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of people now sort of going, God, I have to use this tool forever. You know, they, they thought it was going to be just for the the sort of interim pandemic bit. But um, I'm hearing lots of interesting stuff when it comes to the software that people have to use. Um, we touched on trust there. Let's stay with that for a second. What do you think about the companies that publicly publish all of their staff's wages in a spreadsheet? It's radical transparency. But is that the mm. sort of transparency that we need in the future to regain trust? I, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of transparency. I'm, I'm more of a fan, though. I, I mean, it has its own troubles. You, if you show what uh, somebody makes, compensation is more of a, an art than it is a science. And and when did you see the Instagram poster? It went crazy. And this woman said, "Look, I, you know, this person I I would have hired um, didn't ask for enough, and she could have gotten thirty thousand dollars more. She was absolutely slayed on Instagram." Oof. And they said. 
This is what's wrong with companies is they take advantage. And while I understand that to post an exact range of pay for every job does not give employers the flexibility to say, I'm not sure if I want somebody really, really senior or somebody kind of middle of the road. And so there needs to be some flexibility there. And there are differences with people. But I, th I think by and large, I would be okay with posting what people make. What I'd rather see, though, is a less a lesser gap between what CEOs and executives make and the average line employee. And that requires like a huge, massive shift. If one company does it, they're going to lose their top talent because they can go get paid higher at other companies. So I understand the problem with that. But in a perfect world, we would not have our CEOs and our executive team making what they do. And I'm an executive saying that who's made a lot of money. But the gap between the haves and the have nots is absolutely uh, not okay to me. And yeah. um, it, it, it simply doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I think that's why people are leaving as well. They're sort of like going, well, I can just leave and I'll get 10K extra somewhere else. And it's one of those things. It's almost like a, um, what's the word, um, a, a strategy more than anything else. It's <laughs> like, you're just not great. But I, you know, and they might be just the same, but I've got an extra 10K over there. Why would I put up with you? It's that sort of, you know, I think it's stupidity on the on the behalf of businesses. You know, if you do not look after your people, you know, people call it human capital. I hate that term. But anyway, but people, human capital, then you really don't have a business. And I know that's to some people that go, they roll their eyes and that's airy fairy. But when you think about what the future of the world is, it's people caring. It's that discretionary effort that people are putting into their jobs. And I think it's kind of interesting that a lot more businesses aren't paying attention to this until it's too late. That's the one thing I keep saying. It's that. It, that phrase is until it's too late it's like well you're dealing with a problem you didn't have to deal with you know that's your on you you've got to change and they never change what they need to they might change a procedure but they don't change what causes it at the beginning that's the thing that i keep seeing don't know if you're seeing the same but that's all oh, i see yeah i see absolutely the same thing that's why people don't get increases until they get counter offers or leave the company and that's a really frustrating thing i mean you wait till the very end of the process where somebody has, you know, that could have been a great employee has had it and they see no option left than to leave. And then the company steps in and says, I'm going to do something. You know, I think if you see a company that has a model where that's why I talk about like uh, mimicking ownership or uh, profit sharing that mimics ownership. If companies put it into their people and take some of that money away from, you know, from the, the set you know, multi, multi-million dollar packages of the VPs and try to push it down to the rest of the company more. And, and there's a sense of ownership. I think those companies will win. It's just, I realize it's a tall order to ask. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned ownership there. That's quite interesting. One of your top videos um, was about micromanaging behaviors. I think it's got almost like 5 million views or something like that. Um, you said something that really stayed with me. If you micromanage, you only get a product as good as your brain. Um, but how do people learn not to micromanage? It's pretty deep rooted, right? You've got things like lack of trust, fear, uh, what else? unrealistic expectations from above for those people. But how do people learn not to be a micromanager? Uh, it's a good question. Um, here's what I tell managers in a, in a very oversimplified way. If you can define the what and the when and the why for your people, why are we doing this thing? What needs to be done? Why is it important to do? But you allow the how to your people. That's a really good start. 
So that's not going to fix everything. But if you start to ask those questions of yourself and allow your people to find their own how, you'll find that you, you hire these people for a reason. They arguably have some good, good skills. And it doesn't mean you never have to check in with them, but allowing somebody to get something over the finish line in their way is actually very powerful. I had a boss that did that to me. He wanted me to increase recruiting by like 25% for our company with no additional spend. I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? But he let me try it and he let me try a really wacky idea. I ended up hiring people who marketed B-list movie stars on Instagram to help them revitalize their careers. So I didn't hire recruiters. I hired social media people that helped B-list movie stars. And it worked. And, and, and that leader understood that the how was, was up to me. He never would have come up with that idea. Um, he, he just had to explain, this is when I need it. And this is why it's so important. And let me do what I did. God, I love that that thing that you said. That's a great idea, number one. But also it's like, you hired these people. Like, that's on you. Have you changed? If this is bad situation that you're in, have you changed how you hire people? And I think most people probably haven't for the last like three, five years. Well, actually, when a manager, I get hired by companies to go in and find out what's, what's happening, what's going wrong. And the first mm. thing when somebody describes to me, a manager or a leadership team describes to me, my team is not accountable. I need to figure out how to create a more accountable team. The whole team is not accountable. I know they're a micromanager because mm. what they created is a dynamic where people have to check in with them for every little thing they do to make sure it's right so they don't have to continue to do rework. And you finally just give up as the, as the employee micromanager and just go, tell me what you want and how you want it and I'll do it. And managers describe their whole team as an unaccountable team. I find the odds to be so unlikely that you hired a whole team of unaccountable people, that you're that bad of a hiring leader. And it likely points right back to you as a manager. Yeah, I've definitely worked for all types. And I think I'm a bit micromanaging. But it, again, like you say, it depends on the team you've got. If you trust them implicitly or you know that they're, they'll get it done, it's kind of an interesting one. But it's I've, I've definitely been a micromanager, I think. I've certainly have been with the things that I'm incredibly passionate about, that's for sure. Um, Remote leadership, let's talk about that quickly. It's a new thing for most people, but what's your best advice for people who um, are leading remote teams maybe for the first time? Uh, clarity would be number one. Uh, clarity on what needs to be accomplished. If your team doesn't know the top two or three things that needs to be done to win, then, then you've already lost. And I find that to be something that sounds really simple, but in all of the consulting that I've done and all the companies I've met with, I don't think I have yet to find one company where I could ask the question of their people, tell me the two or three things that are the most important to drive to have their answers match senior leadership. Not yet. Mm. And so that to me is a really important thing to help people understand what's most important and also help people understand the importance of prioritization that you know, especially in a world where we keep heaping things on top of people, all work is not equal. And as a manager, you need to set the tone to say, it's really incumbent on us to do the most important work first. And there's a prioritization to the work. So we don't just like tick through it in a to-do list and everything has an equal value. 
we work on the most important things first and the bottom things are the ones that sometimes have to drop off. And an understanding, uh, creating the understanding as a manager between their employees that it's okay to have the conversation that we have to have choices in, in our prioritization, I think is a pretty important philosophy to drive home with your people. Yeah, no, definitely. I would agree with that. Um, final question before my killer question, but I'm asking everyone this season. Um, let's talk about um, conflict for a second. Communication in business, fraught with emotions. People are, you know, going through some real stuff at the moment. I think the New York Times had a great um, article about how we're all traumatised, but now being, you know, almost forced back into the office some ways. Um, yeah. It affects people's ability to pay bills how is it not going to be personal for people um it can get spicy right how how is conflict changing though as working goes remote or hybrid um well i think i think we've always had a tr trouble with communication as long as i've been in business at least i think i think employees struggle with honest communication and i think managers struggle i, I mean I, for as long as i've been in hr managers going to come to me and they're going to say hey, you know, this person um, has to go. I need to fire them. And I'm going to say, do they know it's coming? And the manager will say, yeah, they hope they know it's coming. Absolutely, they know it's coming. And what I know for sure is they don't know it's coming. So this lack of communication only accelerates itself when we're not together having face-to-face -face conversations. And it's a real problem that I see getting worse, not better. Um, so uh, learning to have upfront conversations when something's not going awry or when something is going awry or even when it's not just just talking to each other picking up the phone and having that that real communication i think is really important and for employees who as we get a younger generation are more and more reticent to say anything to their boss they'll just leave before they say anything i tell them all the time you're going to have to get comfortable with conflict because it's a fatal flaw in your career growth if you can't you're, at some point, you will have to learn the skill of getting comfortable with conflict and having hard conversations. And you'll realize that it builds rather than breaks trust if you do it the right way. Yeah, I think that's the key, isn't it? If you handle things well up front and sort of almost fight up front, then you've got a much better chance of a converting that person into a, a believer or, a you know, a person who will give you much more value in the future i've definitely seen that and it's a real art isn't it though of people doing it it's not necessarily a skill i think everyone's going to be good at but you can certainly learn a lot more right yeah i mean it's yes it is an art form and i tell people look there's three questions if you get everything wrong but get these three questions right you're you're part of the way you're 50 percent of the way there because the idea in communication and conflict is to assume good intent Honestly, if you can assume good intent in the other and not assume bad intent and ask one of these three questions, is that what you intended? Uh, is that how you see it? Or do you see it differently? Or is there something going on? I don't understand. Help me understand. Even if you botch most of the conversation, if you have those three questions, um, you'll find that you can keep the dialogue open. And so, yes, it's an art form, but yes, you can uh, overcome a lot of weaknesses by just assuming good intent. Oh, my God. Those three amazing questions. Definitely. I'm going to go back and write that down. Um, right. Final question. What uh, I'm asking everyone, uh, I'm interviewing uh, hundo.careers later in the season. So they are essentially a new service that's helping young people uh, build their careers and new business models in the metaverse. What's your take on the metaverse and the future of work? Do you think we're all going to be using virtual keyboards or you think uh, now's a good time to buy a stock in Zoom? 
<laughs> I, you know, I'm starting to do, I'm starting to try and understand all of this stuff. I think it is going to have a place. I don't know exactly how it will intersect with real human inter interaction, but I think it is going to be a part of our future. Um, I worry. I worry for the connection, the lack of connection. Um, I think a lack of connection and an overfocus on social media, for instance, is making us a little soul sick. And I think a lot of our mental health issues have to do with that lack of connection. So I think it comes with a whole new set of problems, but I do think it's coming and I think it's not something that we can avoid. Yeah, it's definitely going to be an interesting, it, the, you know, the devil's in the details, isn't it? You know, if people want careers in it, they've got to realise there are financial mechanics behind it where people are going to take almost 50% of the money from you. So it's kind of interesting as well that we, you know, we've talked um, about how, you know, there are very rich people there not passing the money down. <laughs> it's a new world they're building for us to go and to take it in, it seems, for a lot of people. But we shall see. Nothing's really been built yet, but I guess we'll have to see. Um, okay, folks, we end, as ever, with Desert Island Tweets, the part of mouthwash where the guest picks a tweet or two that's changed their mind or way of thinking in some way. Normally, I would say turn your attention to the nest, but I found out 30 minutes before the show that Twitter's currently rejigging the nest. So unfortunately, I can't show it um, today, but I can talk you through it, which is weird. Talking about a tweet I was meant to show you, but hey, we'll, we'll do our best. All right. So the tweet that um, Tessa has picked is from a gent called Nate Pothelswaite. And if you want to follow Nate, it's at Nate underscore Pothelswaite. Um, and the tweet reads, that story you're afraid to tell will be a lifeline of hope for someone who is hurting and afraid they're, they're the only one. Tessa, why did you pick this one? Well, if you follow me at all, you'll know that um, my son tried to commit suicide um, just over a week ago. And we've had a long, long battle with some challenges with him and uh, with addiction and such. So you know, my heart really goes out to those who, who struggle, especially around mental health. And, you know, if you knew my life story, you would be shocked at some of the difficulties I've had to go through. I have a sister that's homeless a good share of the time that we take turns trying to make sure she's alive, for instance. Um, life isn't easy and it's not getting easier. And I think we need to show a lot more compassion to those people who are struggling because, uh, you know, we don't know the story that's behind it. And and that's why I have opened up more on social media to tell people the stories of my life a little bit more now, because I think we find strength in it. And we tend to think nobody else is going through crap when uh, I think we're all going through it. I mean, we're all hitting this point where it's like, something's got to give. I mean, I've yeah. been there. So I just think we need to show a little more compassion, a little more um, understanding when somebody's mm -hmm. uh, not doing well, there's usually a reason underneath it. And you don't know, so you should ask, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, definitely. Okay, that is a wrap on season seven of season four, episode seven of season four even. Um, my thanks to Tessa White for making uh, the future of HR management a lot clearer. Um, certainly lots to think about. Um, find out more about Tessa over at drtessawhite.com and follow her on TikTok at jobdrtessa where there's some amazing resources from a free should I stay or go assessment to a promotability test and a lot more besides. Um, any final words of advice for listeners, Tessa? Uh, hmm. well, I would just say, uh, keep on keeping on, know that, uh, it's going to get hard and it's going to get better. So if you're in a hard spot, keep going. 
Excellent, excellent. Okay, up next on Mouthwash is Dan Pink, author of Drive and other New York Times bestsellers. I think he's got five of them now. Um, his latest book, The Power of Regret, is all about looking backwards to move forward. So very, very good segue there. Um, we're going to be talking about making better decisions, big life choices, and a lot more besides. I urge you to tune in. Uh, head over to mouthwash.norby.live and you'll get a text so you don't miss a minute of it. Mouthwash is produced by Suze and the team at Big Tent Media. As always, everything Mouthwash, uh, even the text alerts can be found over at mouthwashshow.com or one word, mouthwashshow.com. I'm a firm believer that you do not remember the days, we remember the moments, and I hope this has been one for you. Uh, I am Paul Armstrong, this is Mouthwash. Listen in again soon for more fresh chat that leaves you more confident. Thanks for listening to Mouthwash. Please share it in a network you trust and check out our sponsors. Season 4 of Mouthwash was sponsored by Workplace by Meta. The easy-to-use features at Workplace help people work together in new ways. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Have a great day.